everyone. Welcome back to Keeping Track. In this episode, Alicia and I talk to Allison Mariella Desir about her new book, Running While Black. We talk about who she hopes reads the book, what the process of writing it was like. She dives into what the book is about and what she hopes the book does for the running industry. And we just have a good conversation around this long-awaited book. So thanks for keeping track. And we'll turn it over to Allison. Hi, it's Ro McGettigan. This episode of Keeping Track is sponsored by TheFeed.com. The Feed is the largest online marketplace for your sports nutrition, offering the brands you know and love from Scratch Labs and Cliff Bar to Morterin, plus their athlete customized supplements called Feed Formulas. They carry over 250 brands, so you have thousands of products to choose from and try. What we love about The Feed is that their products are curated, and they spend a lot of time picking and choosing what they want to offer on their site, so that you know you are seeing the best products on the market. Head to the link in our website and Instagram bio to claim your $80 off feed credit. Boom. Welcome back to Keeping Track. Today, Alicia and I are here talking with Allison Mariella Desir about her new book, Running While Black, coming out October 18th. Um, you may remember Allison spoke with us on the pod way back in 2020, season one, episode 20, if you want to go look it up. Allison is a mother, a distance runner, an activist, the founder of Harlem Run, a speaker and an author. She's also done consulting with various sports companies, including most recently serving as director of sport advocacy at Wazelle and with Brooks as a run happy advocate. Allison, welcome back to Keeping Track. Thank you so much. It's really exciting to be back with you. Yeah, Allison, there's so much to connect on. I had an opportunity to have an early read of your book in which I, you know, I was like, I wanted to share a blurb. I ended up sharing like three blurbs because it was just (laughs) so powerful. I was like, one, are you sure? If you need five, I can totally um, take over. It was just really a powerful read. Um, And, you know, I think one of the things I just want to jump into is just tell us more about your vision behind even writing mm. while black. Yeah. Well, thank you for that, Alicia. Um, I, you came to mind so much in this book because I feel lucky that we're friends and we have an opportunity to chat about how our experiences are um, very similar in a lot of ways, despite other differences in our life. But, you know, initially the book was called the unbearable whiteness of running. And that title was more when I saw this book as like straight manifesto sort of like going through and, um, really just making obvious the ways that running was not built for us. And while I thought that was powerful, that's actually like the way that I wrote for a year I spent like creating that version of the book. And then my editor received it and she was like, you know, this is powerful, but what would be even more powerful is if you insert yourself in this narrative and if you tell your story. And I was like, well, damn, why did we have to wait a year (laughs) to get to this? For anybody who writes a book, you know that this is how it goes. Then the last, you know, we had an extension the last three months. um, That's when I put myself at the center of the story and changed the title to Running While Black. Because, you know, books that I love, that I really connect with, are when you are reading somebody's story, right? When you understand where a person is coming from, the things that shaped them. And then the way that they live in the world. 
so I, I realized that it would be really powerful for readers to understand who I am and and um, what it means to run while black, what it means to be black in these spaces. And you know, in the history of running books, there are very few running books that are written by black people, um, non-white people in general. So this is the first, you know, one of the first of its kind to truly share an experience of what it means to to run while black in this in this running space in this entire industry. Mm-hmm. And I think when I was reading the book, of course, you know, I saw so much of just like you know a behind the lens view that I know readers that weren't you know, even black readers were able to see mm. that behind the lens view and just really understand. I think the words that I use is just what it's like to be a runner who is constantly minimized, removed, mm. raised mm-hmm. all together in uh, all sorts of spaces of running, you know, suddenly it's like, you know, you just don't exist as a black runner when it comes to run world. And, you know, we talked a, a lot about that with, um, uh, the runner's world article and with keeping track, Absolutely. You know, we were able to see like how much black runners were removed from just like the storyline. So, um, I mean, that research was really critical because in my experience, so I ran my first marathon in 2012 and my entire training cycle, I didn't, you know, I, I didn't know that there were running publications at first, but then I was like, Oh, there's runners world and the women running. And I recall during that whole period, never seeing anybody who looked like me on the cover. And I knew that anecdotally, but then to have your research confirm the numbers, right? That during whatever X, Y, Z years, not a single non-white person was on the cover of these magazines. It's like, oh, okay, I'm not just quote unquote crazy. I'm not just inventing this notion that I don't belong or that I don't see myself. Truly these magazines and other media have never put us on covers, right? And like, mm-hmm. I mean, I was so happy. I also talk about this in the book, the the happiness that I had for seeing you on the cover. and then the rage I had that somebody had to be gunned down in order for them to see the value of this amazing black woman. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, you shared a lot. I talked about the lens behind, you know, running while black, but you shared a lot about what running has done for you just from a mental standpoint. Why did you jump off your book with sharing about the hardships of your story that brought you into running? Mm-hmm. Yeah, because, you know, I think that First of all, I wanted to make it clear that this is a it's a complex story. As much as I see a lot of issues with the industry and the running community, I wrote this book because I'm deeply invested in it and I care so much about it, right? Running saved my life in more ways than one. It's given me absolutely everything from my partner to the name of my son. We, his name literally means to run in Haitian Creole, right? Like running is everything. Um, I'm one of those people who evangelizes like strangers on the street to start moving in whatever way feels comfortable. So I thought it was important to make sure that this story is situated from the perspective of somebody who loves running, who mm-hmm. understands what it can do for people, who wants to get everybody moving. And yet there are some very real obstacles um, whether it's environmental justice related, right, where neighborhoods are and who has access to resources, whether it's representation, who people see and then believe belongs in the sport, to who has the power and ownership in this industry, right? Like all of those are obstacles that make it such that running while Black is this particular experience. Mm-hmm. Who do you hope reads this book? Like mm-hmm. what is your um, ideal audience or set of audiences with this book? Well, every single person, which it's funny because when you put together for anybody listening and all three of us have written books, so we know this, 
Um, but when you put together a book proposal, they want to know like who your audience is. And I literally wanted to say everybody, but like, no, that's not how it works. Like you have to narrow it down. But I do think, so, you know, when I think about the audiences, I think for sure, I want black people to read this, black and brown people to read this and feel validated and Mm -hmm. finally have an experience that has some similarities to theirs in the like official canon of books you can buy because there's nothing more powerful than being able to pick up a book and connect with it and be like, oh my gosh, yeah, I I know what this is like. Then on the other hand, I want white people um, who have no idea that Running While Black is even a thing to come to understand what that experience is like and then be like sort of armed with the information to make a difference. Mm-hmm. Beyond that, this book is like, it's really not just about running. In the introduction, I say, this is a book for anybody who's ever felt like they didn't fit a particular mold or they felt left out, excluded, and had to figure out a way to find a place for themselves, right? So this is, this is it's, a, it's a book about running, but it's not just a running book. And I hope, you know, I, I was on a, another podcast where I was saying, this book could be running while trans, running mm-hmm. while um, disabled, running while, right? It's really the story of what it is to, uh, to move as a person um, in a world that wasn't built with you in mind. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I don't want to share too much of the book because I want you guys all to get it, but I was just reading two, two spots of your, well, several, but of your experience that like I felt was very interesting. And it's, you, you talked about one part where, you, you know, where you're running in this uh, loop in Central Park mm. and you talked about, you know, having running as a regular part of your life and how it was a gift. And that when you saw running groups together, you longed for a camaraderie and, you mm. know, someone to share high fives with um, when mm. you reach the top of the hill. And I, what I thought was really powerful among so many other things is just how you continued on talking about loving the experiences about the choices that you made when oh, yeah. part of your life. Can you tell us a little bit more about that and why you felt that was important to share in this book? Yeah, I mean, that, those were some of the most fun parts to write about because this section of the book in particular is talking about my early experiences um, in training after completing my first marathon. And just sort of the, that whole experience was one of becoming embodied, right? Like uh, I came to running because I was very depressed and you know on my couch every day and watching everybody live their lives on social media. And I spent a lot of time self-medicating, whether it was NyQuil or Xanax or alcohol. And so I just, I felt disconnected from community, but also disconnected from myself. Like my body was just in this state of like, like I I didn't have any feelings, right? Like there was nothing, I I was not in touch with with what the signals my body was giving me. Um, And really all I wanted was to be sedated. So Mm -hmm. then when I started running, it was so powerful to know like, oh, if I ran really hard, then I would be sore. And I remember learning the difference between like one of my coaches said, you're sore. Like, let's say you have pain in your legs. You're sore if both of your legs hurt the same way. (laughs) It's an injury if one feels different and is, you know, disproportionately in pain. And I was like, oh my God, I just learned something about my body. Like that is so cool. And then thinking about like, okay, eating pizza for dinner And then waking up and going for a run in the morning and feeling just like heavy and weighed down, but making a choice to eat like grilled chicken and quinoa and salad. And then having this like different pep in my body, I just was like, 
holy shit, like, where is this information in school? Like, yeah. because this mm-hmm. is the intersection between food, mental health, uh, embodiment, mm-hmm. uh, nutrition, right? Mm-hmm. Like all of this is what allows somebody to perform, even if you're not an Alicia Montano or Molly Huddle, right? Mm-hmm. And this also goes to this historical um, institutionalized racism where you think about, well, what food is available in school, right? Like, I mean, my son is now going to daycare and um, the daycare is a lovely place, but we are not super wealthy. And like, they're eating tortilla chips, which like, I'm not saying the food is bad, right? But being mindful of what amount of resources we have equates to what kind of food. Because I'm sure there are places not too far from where I live where everything they have is organic and grass-fed and blah, blah, blah. Like these are critical differences that have a big impact on who you become and how you mm-hmm. feel about yourself. And, or- and that's why it is so worth um, speaking out about and fighting for the opportunity for everyone to experience sport. Um, especially at a young age, because that kind of relationship with your body, with food, with mindfulness, with feeling Mm -hmm. your body and appreciating like when you treat it good, what it feels like when you treat it bad, what it feels like all of that is so valuable um, and so important. And that's, that's really important to hear that from someone. So yeah. And also, oh yeah. No, well, just the piece about like, elite athletes get access to it and not even all the time, right? Because I also know, you know, Lord Fleshwood is a good friend of ours and she's a book all about how female bodies are destroyed in the athletic industrial complex, right? So elite athletes are also harmed by this, but everybody, every single person, including my mom, who's always trying to lose weight because diet culture has like just done a number on her. Everybody needs to know how to fuel their body and feel good about themselves. Mm-hmm. Feel good yeah, fitness. From, 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 feel good fitness, everybody. Okay, hold on. This is not a plug about my book. Um, everybody, like, I think just like at the very beginning of our cellular makeup, like just understanding that our cells need nutrient dense fuel, like in mm-hmm. order to feel good. And it goes mm-hmm. from throughout our entire body, through our brains and our brains are the ones that lead us into how we move throughout our lives. Right. And mm-hmm, mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. there is so much of, yeah, like just like the mental component to why it's very important for us to think through how we're taking care of ourselves. It's just a trickle down effect. Um, so just to kind of name on that though, when you talk about access to running mm-hmm. and knowing now the feel goods that happen when you have found some sort of access to running, but then also recognizing I'm looking around and I'm still in a space where I feel like I don't belong. Something right. that is, I know in my being is giving me so much. And now from an outside perspective, you know, we're actually like for you inside looking out, but then at the same time, feeling the outside looking in on you, like what that Absolutely. does, that mental, you know, your mental mindset. Yeah. And, you know, like, I'm going to relate this to something that Molly and I were chatting about offline before we got on the podcast. She mentioned just, you know, talking about where she lives and how Rhode Island, um, which I hope is not a secret that you live in Rhode Island. Definitely not. (laughs) Definitely not. (laughs) I'm a proud Rhode Islander. Yeah. 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 But the difference between when you're in Flagstaff and essentially you were talking about how your central nervous system feels at ease because of um, the environment around you. And then when you're in Rhode Island and suddenly you're confronted by this more open urban atmosphere, what that does for you. Mm-hmm. Right. And there's a phenomenon or, um, you know, in mental health called weathering and weathering certainly has to do with these environmental effects, but weathering really looks at the way that racialized minorities 
are weathered, right? Are like little by little, just like torn down by institutionalized racism, environmental racism, et cetera, et cetera. So think about the joy that you experience when you're running, but then you also have to contend with these jolts from the world, right? Like these like, oh my God, that guy has a um, Make America Great Again hat. Like, what does that mean for me? Oh my God, there's an American flag. Like, what does that mean for me? Like these constant, or you're like Alicia, who I talk about in the book and you line up for a race and you're like, oh my God, I'm the defending champion and no one said my name, right? Like, am I, am I here? Right? Like, so the way that there's this nuance to this push and pull of the joy and the beauty of it, and then being disregarded and, and in that moment disembodied, right? Like, I know that when I get those jolts, I have to really focus on like, stay in your body because what you want is to like disappear and and run and save yourself from whatever you're experiencing. Mm -hmm. It's like a fight or flight response. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. Exactly. I mean, I wish that there wasn't so much, uh, sync (laughs) on on the experience, but, um, your voice really does lend a powerful viewpoint, you know, for every single reader to take a look at. And what I love so much is how you tied into the importance of finding running groups that made Mm. you feel included. And then how it actually also, those running groups made you dive more into the history of running and what you saw Mm -hmm. with it. And how mm-hmm. it continued to perpetuate the what you were originally titling your book, Unbearable Whiteness of Running. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No, yeah, no. well, you know, and that's why it's also important for me to tell my personal story growing up. Because what you realize is that I've always been like the nerdiest person in the world. <laughs> and I say that as a point of a point of pride. <laughs> and like I've just always been, and it's in part due to my parents, I've always just wondered like why and how and is this story like the only story that's been told of this. And my father at a very young age told me like, what makes it into history books is not fact. It's just the people who had the power to write the book. (laughs) So that unlocks for me this idea that, you know, what you read, you have to be skeptical of, including my book, right? And you have to seek for other perspectives. And also multiple perspectives can exist at the same time because we all have our unique experiences. So anyway, that sort of is like understanding that about me as a person is such a huge piece of understanding why later I would then get really curious about, well, what is the history of running? What blows my mind is when I look at the dates in 1963, Bill Bowerman put this call out for everybody to join him at Hayward Field. And most people, almost everybody cites that as the beginning of the long distance running boom, right? Where everybody showed up. And we're talking about Eugene, Oregon right, where Oregon was a state that actually prohibited Black people from living in the state. 1963, I also started thinking about like, well, wasn't that during the Civil Rights Movement? And when Martin Luther King was like leading marches for Black people to get access to vote, to sit where they wanted. So this like cognitive dissonance around like calling white people to be outside while we Black people were just being like fighting to sit at a counter to eat. And then another date, I always remembered 1896 being the year of the first modern Olympics. But I also remembered, wasn't that the year of Plessy versus Ferguson, which was what essentially allowed um, Jim Crow segregation to flourish? So there was just this like, holy cow, like we're talking about a white world, which is termed quote unquote for everyone. And then a black world that has always been and continues to be severely restricted by the laws that white people make. So, you know, this, all of this came to mind. I actually forget the question, but because this was just such a powerful, like, boom, like, 
this story has never been told fully. Oh, mm-hmm. getting back to why I then, so, so that was in my mind. And then I started thinking like, okay, well then like, there must be more here. Like looking through imagery of Bill Bowerman and the so-called like running boom. And there's no images of black people, black men, black women. Like, did we just not exist? <laughs> and so like, through that, I came to this big discovery, which you learn in the book. I'll, I'll share a little bit, but just, you know, the Ted Corbett and the power of the New York Pioneer Club. And in truth, there was so much that Black people did to create the foundation for the sport that we now love and enjoy. And this intentional erasure of that story has made it such that Black people today don't think Black people run long distance. And it's like, actually, we basically created the sport. Mm -hmm. So I loved learning that. Yeah, Alicia shared just some snippets of the early copy of the book with me. And that timeline in the beginning is so powerful where it's parallels of the run- history of running and then basically Black history in the United States. And it's, you know, sometimes they intersect, but it's, you know, a lot of people, especially white people, will see things they didn't know happened or they'll learn something that mm-hmm. they didn't know was even a piece of history. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And for yep. Black runners, it's permeated with throughout our mind, just the the quick sync for you to be looking at a date and know that it meant something in Mm. black history when a white runner, Mm. you know, won't be thinking that same way. You know, it's it's Mm -hmm. interesting. One of the things that you also mentioned was just even like now, you know, 2020, it takes for a black man to be gunned down before people are like, what do we need to do to take a look at what's happening in the world? Exactly. It's been, it's been happening. Um, So I'm going to write a book about it. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. It, yeah, it's it just it's like so. What you what I've learned is that it's an intentional miseducation mm-hmm. of, in particular, white people. Right, like there are literally laws now in Florida, right, like the Stop Woke Act, or I don't know if it's actually been made law, but this if you look at the the intent of laws like the Stop Woke Act, or even laws like Don't Ask, Don't Tell, which was in the military in the '90s, or you look at the way that, um, and I don't know the details of it, but preventing educators from uh, allowing trans and non-binary youth to talk about their experience and live authentically. The goal of each of these projects is erasure and to keep white people comfortable, right? It's the work of white supremacy because mm-hmm. when white people learn the truth and also learn how harmful white supremacy is to everybody, including themselves, like we wouldn't stand for it, right? Like white supremacy is what contributes to these, uh, you know, the policies that were against uh, pregnant athletes receiving healthcare. <laughs> White supremacy mm-hmm. is what's behind the idea that women should be real thin and should starve themselves, and then they compete and get hurt. Like that is all white supremacy. All of us are harmed by it. But mm-hmm. these intentional projects of like erasure and uh, keeping people misinformed, you know, keeps the status quo. Mm-hmm. Allison, when you were writing this book, I remember when we talked um, way back in season one, you mentioned. The article you had recently written mm. for, I forget if it was Runner's World or Women's Running. It was outside, outside, outside. Yeah. outside. Yeah. And um, you were like, this article flowed out of me. Like this was mm. stuff that I didn't have to think up. It was here. It's been here. Is this how the book was for you too? Were you like, I've had this book ready for a while? I wish. <laughs> I, <laughs> I mean, I, I definitely knew what I wanted to say, but like the idea of actually writing a book, it, it was so much more complicated than I thought. And just things that, you know, um, I, I'm not, I guess I, I can call myself a writer. I'm a writer, but I, I didn't have formal training in writing a book, 
guess who does? Um, yeah. But so the idea of show not tell, which is something that I've heard all my life was really difficult for me because I wanted to just say like, this is what happened and this is what I thought. And it's like, don't you agree? <laughs> and it's like, <laughs> no, that's not how you write. It's all about, mm-hmm. um, I, I had the most trouble with really trying to capture the experience and what I was feeling. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was, again, I have to thank my my editor and, and folks in my circle who really were just so helpful in, in me learning the craft of writing. But I, I definitely, I knew what I wanted to say. And, and as I, as I was writing, I saw connections that I hadn't necessarily put together before, which was really cool. Like mm-hmm. in my, in the part of the book where I talk about my childhood, there's key moments that I discuss and I'm like, oh my God, I've always been this way. Like I've just, I just shifted what particular focus I was talking about, but like, this has always been me. Right. And so that was really beautiful to be able to see those connections and, and reflect as I was writing. Yeah. I, I, I do have to say, um, I got an early read of your book and I started reading it got like halfway through, not even halfway, maybe a quarter through. And I was just exhausted. I was so <laughs> just like, mm. there was excitement in there. And it was like, when you start mm. talking to girls, it just like the exhaustion. Mm. So like, Mm. I, I literally was feeling mm-hmm. man, living in a space where you are constantly from day one experiencing what I, for me, I'm like, I'm living quadruple consciousness, you know, mm. where you are mm-hmm. outside of your brain, then you're inside of your body, then you're in someone else's mm-hmm. brain, then you're back inside your body. Um, you know, I, I don't, how long did it take you to write this book? <laughs> I don't, and have you been yeah, able to well, it was- since? Yeah, I know. I mean, it's like, I actually, so it was, it was the year plus the three months where finally we like, I got to what I wanted to truly say, but I just recently was recording the audiobook and in reading it, like, I was like, oh my gosh, I felt that, that exhaustion also, right? Mm-hmm. Like this is, and I think now about this quote um, that uh, Maya Angelou says about, you know, the real, the goal of, of racism is to distract mm-hmm. and really to make us tired, right? Like think about, how much of our lives is spent as black women, just like dealing with racism and sexism. And then you got to fight for your, you know, how much money you get because you know, white man's making like three times more. And then you have to prepare your son to like be this so that the world is like, it's just Mm -hmm. like, what is all this? It's, it's truly exhausting. Mm -hmm. And I'm glad that that's, you know, I wish we didn't have to be exhausted, but that is, that is ultimately the success of the book that somebody finishes and realizes like, Oh my gosh. Like mm-hmm. you're thinking about all these things all the time. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. yeah. And you know, when you, you talked about, you know, running whiteness wasn't only evident at major events, it permeated the sport. What I also mm. saw was how much the connection to sport and even, you know, my, my nonprofit is about sports being a microcosm of what's happening in the world. And mm-hmm. you are sharing so succinctly sports, being a microcosm of what's happening in the world. For us, it's mm-hmm. a macro, you know, mm-hmm. it's a macrocosm mm-hmm. inside of a, a person of color's body, you know, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. for allowing people an opportunity to not have that be microscopic. And instead what you did was you gave it to them at a macro level. There was at one point, there was a chapter of the book called, um, I think it was called running is political or everything mm-hmm. is political, right? Because that is what a lot of what a lot of people say whenever we speak our truth is like keep politics. No, it's going to be called keep politics out of running. People say keep politics out of running. Like you know, whenever Runner's World says posts something even remotely uh, 
I don't know how to qualify it. Uh, (laughs) Something humane. (laughs) Post something humane. The comments are just like, ew, like I unsubscribe. I'm leaving. This is like, stop the wokeness of this. Oh yeah. I remember there's one comment that was like, uh, go woke, get broke or something. I'm like, (laughs) what? And do, do you two get comments like that personally as well? I don't, I used to get them a lot more in the comments. Now I get them in the DMs, DMs and like, but yeah. it's, it's wonderful. Cause it's in like the general or whatever the other category is. So I don't even like, sometimes I go there to laugh, but mm-hmm. I think it's because shout out to the people who follow me and my friends. I think they know, like if they dare put something, in the comments, like, <laughs> they're afraid. <laughs> oh, yeah. You know what? Well, for but me, yeah, though, like this, it's so it's so like ludicrous that yeah. people are so threatened mm-hmm. by hearing somebody's truth that they just like explode and want to throw it all away. Totally. And I love like you are you are so unapologetic. And at times I am that way, but like you the the quote from Maya um Angelou, like I get so exhausted, I don't realize that I'm I am allowing myself to be minimized mm. and pressed down because I'm so tired mm. of fighting mm. in every space I'm in. And I, when I say every space, I'm saying every space. Like it could be mm. um, an organization I start. It could be mm. a, maybe a brand that I start up. It could, it, I know it will follow me every single way. Mm. And just being able to follow you, uh, connect with your words and mm. feel that empowerment is exactly why you're the space that you're in and helping represent for us mm-hmm. and, and, you know, black runners, people of color allow for allyship to really have a lens into the viewpoint mm-hmm. of Allison and your ability to be able to share that. Um, one, I just have to say thank you. And also yeah. how can we support you, <laughs> you know, yeah. knowing that yeah. this is not, this is hard work and you were doing yeah. And times the amount of work that you should even have to do for yourself, yet the greater community of the run world and black people. I first want to say like, you are so welcome. And it's, you know, it is exhausting, but it also, you know, I just know that this is what I was like put on this planet to do. Mm-hmm. And if I can hype somebody up and remind them who the fuck they are, <laughs> I'm going to do it. Right. Um, <laughs> But then the other piece of it is like, yeah, support is support and community is really critical and being able to have, honestly, like there's, there's two ways, like, uh, and they're both big, but one is to be able to have a supportive community where I can also just like go off on stuff or, you know, have somebody who just like have, have people who I know care about me because like, especially with this book coming out, there's going to be a whole string of like haters and chaos that comes with it. Uh, which in some ways I'm prepared for, but just to be able to have a circle of people who I can talk to and be myself with is hugely important. And then the other thing is recognizing all the obstacles that people like me are up against, like supporting, right? Like literally buying this book. I I was reading, there's um, the New York Times in 2020 did a study about um, the whiteness of publications of, of authors. And they found that from the 1950s to 2020, 95% 95% of books were written by white people, right? 95%. Mm-hmm. So what that means is we know that pre-orders are essential for the life of the book. And there are so few of us publishing that if if my book doesn't do well, guess what? It doesn't just affect me. It affects the future of other black women, right? Because the industry then says, oh, well, you know, when you partner with, a, when you publish a black woman's book, it doesn't do well. We don't get our money back. So why would we do it, right? So buy our books. 
mm-hmm. show up for our events mm-hmm. um, and, and spread, spread the knowledge that we're giving. Yeah. Molly, I've been like, you know, just so <laughs> it, one, just flipping through all of this, but also, you know, I want to give you some, some space to ask any additional questions because I mean, I have plenty and I don't know if we have enough time. <laughs> well, yeah. I want to dig up actually, but yeah. <laughs> Allison, you touched on it a little bit earlier, but like you mentioned, there's probably going to be some blowback with the book mm. from the people you've heard from before and you're prepared for it. What does that look like? And what are like, what do we, what do you have as an answer for some of the things you're predicting are going to come from this? It's, I, in my mind, I'm predicting it's probably people who won't read the book. They'll just hear about exactly. the book and go exactly. off of it. Yeah, that's exactly what I think will happen. And there are there are certain chapters in particular that are very provocative um, or that will be seen as very provocative. The chapter about Boston Marathon, I predict will be the one that um, gets people like super hot and bothered. Mm-hmm. Um, but my, you know, I'm ready to have, I want to have conversations, right? Like this book is actually meant to be disruptive, which mm-hmm. means that things you believed for so long to be true you're going to be shaken up and start to wonder if they were in fact true. That's awesome. I love that. What I hope is that people don't go immediately to, well, this wasn't my experience, so it's untrue. And mm-hmm. that's where the hate is going to come from. People who feel like their world is rocked or their understanding of something is rocked and their mind can't make a space for that. And so mm-hmm. they go to, this is not true. This person is just trying to destroy our sport. Mm-hmm. Um, Right. And so that, so I, I know that's coming in, like, that's not going to feel good when people say bad things about me, but I'm also right. going to know that this is like something internal that's happening to them. <laughs> right. right. Like when, when you find out the way you view the world was actually one that has been creating harm for other people, like, damn, that's, that's really hard to process. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I'm going to, what I'm going to tell myself is like, you know, these people are going through something and what they're projecting is their feelings of discomfort. And that, that and then I'm just going to try not to read comments and, you know, people, if you see bad stuff about me, I do not need to see it. Do not send me the links. <laughs> do not. Come um, on, you guys. Protect yeah. her peace. Yeah. Yeah. 100%. And that's, that's, re- that's really what it's going to be. And like, and I just hope it continues, right? Like more people need to be like, look, I'm somebody who's, I'm cis, cis, I'm able-bodied, like, I follow a lot of disability activists and they remind me just how fucked up some of the things I say are and how exclusive mm-hmm. I'm being. Mm-hmm. And it's really hard because I'm like, what do you mean? I've always felt comfortable here. Like that's my first reaction. Mm-hmm. And then I'm like, okay, Allison, <laughs> but guess yeah. what? This is somebody else's experience. Like, can you allow room in your brain for somebody else to have a different experience? Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean yours is no longer valid. It just means that we need to open it up more for them. Yeah. Not a single group of people is monolithic and us allowing for our, yeah, our brains have space for other people's experiences is the only way that we're going to be inclusive. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like it's, people need to practice that, honestly. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah. And hopefully, like you said, if you can do it in one way, you can do it in many different ways for many different people. So good practice. It's a good practice to just have that ability. (laughs) It is. We'd we'd all be better. Yeah, gotta be better. <laughs> there are some. I'm like, I have like quotes for quotes of quotes, but I'm like, hold on, I can't do this because you guys have to read the book. Um, That's right. 
So. Unless, Allison, if you would like to leave us with a quote or if you have an embodying quote, feel free to read it here. But if, if it's by the book to get the quotes also, we could do that. No, I would love, Alicia, if you want to share a quote that really resonated with you and then we can talk about that and make people know there's even more to come. Okay, do it, Alicia. Okay, this is one of my favorite quotes that's within Running While Black. It's runners know that running brings us to ourselves, but for black people, the simple act of running has never been so simple. It is a declaration of the right to move through the world. If running is claiming public space, why then does it feel like a negotiation? Boom. I don't just like, it was all over the whole entire space. I'm just like, anyways, shall I leave you with that? Yeah. Well, you know, that quote is also, that really is like, just the heart of this book because it is so simplistic to see the outdoors as you just go outside, right? Like everybody can just go outside. When in truth, I mean, Black people could not go to public pools. National parks would not let us go use the same facilities as white people. We had inferior facilities in places like Shenandoah National Park, right? Like I'm not creating this. This is Mm -hmm. history. And if you don't know this history, you have to think about why you don't know this history. Mm-hmm. Just because the signs go away doesn't mean that a place has become welcoming, right? Mm-hmm. So it is a constant negotiation. And the more marginalized identities you have, if I were moving through space as a Black body that was non-binary, that was gender fluid, like I love following this person, Alok Manon, who is, um, they're non-binary and they are like just a fashionista and they also have a lot of hair on their body, people literally like vomit in front of this person, right? And and try to make this person feel like they are an abomination and shouldn't exist. So still on a negotiation, like this space is not welcome for all people. And that is really the cornerstone of this book. So buy it and understand it and then get on board with making running more open for everybody. Mm-hmm. And like really just notice like, Check yourself. If you're having visceral reactions of negativity towards, you know, Allison's experience and, you know, what she's bringing to the forefront, um, then that should be a moment of pause for you and reflection, you know, get yourself mm. a notepad and a, and a piece of paper, you yep. know, I mean, a, a pencil and, and really write down those thoughts and work with yourself on why are you feeling this way? Um, what I will tell exactly. you is as much as, you know, running and claiming public space for, you know, marginalized groups of people has been a negotiation. What is not is you guys all going out and buying <laughs> Allison Desir's book. That's it. Complex. Yes. <laughs> Where and when, uh, Allison? Can you give us the details? Yes. So you can buy it anywhere you want to buy books. If um, if you're buying it before the 18th, uh, a pre-order, I recommend going to my website, Allison M as in Mary Desir.com. You'll get access to a bonus chapter that you won't find anywhere else and also an excerpt um, after the 18th, literally anywhere. I'll be traveling for six weeks um, on my book tour and I can't wait to see you in person and let's get uncomfortable. Let's chat it up and um, buy my book. <laughs> yes, October 18th. And that's, um, there is an audiobook you mentioned as well. Yes, yes. There's an audiobook, which was such a cool experience. So yeah, also available on audio. Um, and you then get to hear like all of my inflection and I do voices and stuff. So it'll be, it'll be fun. I love it. Okay. And you mentioned you're going to be taking yourself on a book tour. What is maybe a stop 
a major marathon, anything where people can. Yeah. Well, I'll be, um, so I will be, um, launch week. I'll be in New York. So that's October 18th to the 21st. Then I'll be in DC at Pacers running, um, in Seattle, I'll be at REI, Elliott Bay books. I'll be in Boston. Um, I'm at the Boston book festival and I'm, I'll also be, there's an event with trailblazers and pioneer run club. I'll be at the New York city marathon. I will be in Oakland. Alicia, you will be there. <laughs> Oakland, uh, where else? San Francisco, Los Angeles, Michigan. So I'm covering a lot of territory. You are covering quite a lot of territory. And thank goodness events are, are available towards book launches. I'm so jealous. I know. But I, I will know, support I you know. in all of the spaces. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I love know, it so much. Well, Allison, thank you so much for spending time with us and for keeping track. Molly, do you want to go ahead and throw everybody an opportunity to know when they need to go out and buy Allison Sears' book? Yes, October 18th is the date if you haven't pre-ordered it already, but I advise you to pre-order it now. Um, and we will put up all the information that Allison gave us on following her and her website and the book and everything on our blog as well. www.keeping-track.com. Awesome. Thank you so much, Allison. Thank you. Thanks, ladies. Keep track. Keep track. Keep track. Keep track. One time. Yeah. Yeah. Keep track. Keep track. One time. One. Yeah. 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 Keep track. You already know what track. track. Major shout outs to What Cheer Writers Club Podcasting Studio, a nonprofit supporting Rhode Island's content creators and where Roshin and I record, and to Rudy Nakashima for our funky outro song. Thanks, guys. What is this technological thing you got going on here? It looks like there's a button. It's called a cloud. <laughs> Running should be simple. Just put on your shoes and go. And yet, when you try to learn about how to get better at it, especially as you age, you're confronted with conflicting advice, complicated workouts, and confusing nutrition trends that just won't work for you. On The Planted Runner, I'll share exactly how to run faster, longer, and feel great doing it at any age because you don't have time to waste. I'm Coach Claire Bartholik, and I went from not running at all in my late 30s to finishing a marathon in 2.58 at age 42, all on a plant-based diet. I've helped hundreds of runners achieve new personal records well into their 60s and even 70s with science-back training, plant-based nutrition, and proven mental strength techniques. Each episode of The Planted Runner is like a private coaching session on the run where you'll learn from me and the guests I interview. You'll get actionable lessons to help you become a better runner every week and reach goals you never thought possible. Whether you're training for your first 5K or your 50th marathon, take along the planted runner on your next run. Let me show you how your best running is still ahead of you.